Um, why do human beings ask questions? It's a peculiar feature of humanity, isn't it, that we ask questions? You know, from a very young age, we humans just can't help but ask questions. Uh, why, Dad? Uh, but why, Mom? You know, it can be painful if you're on the receiving end of answering your four-year-old's 70,000th why. But the su studies suggest the reason children ask so many why questions is not because they wish to annoy you, as difficult as that is to believe, but more often than not, they're genuinely curious for explanations. That's just how human brain works. Uh, that's the thing about human beings, persons. Uh, we think, question, reflect. Uh, we can even judge and evaluate. It's a unique feature of humanity that has puzzled the brightest minds of us all. The philosophers, the evolutionary biologists, the brain scientists. Human self-consciousness, our ability to think, to question and answer, and then to align our lives and change our behaviors is an unfathomable wonder. However, asking a question is one thing. Asking a good question is a different matter altogether. Isn't that right? Asking the right question can discover a new scientific theory, invent a new product, turn around a business, open up a whole new way of living, but it's not always obvious to us what the right question to ask is. And as a result, what the right answer is. And as we grow up, many of us resign to the fact that we'll never find out, so we stop asking and trying to answer even important questions of life. Uh, what would be some really important and right questions to ask and answer in your life? I'm talking about questions of real substance, right? How, how about this? What is God like? Uh, they simply flattering in order to trap Jesus with that question in the following verse. Yet unwittingly, they speak the truth here. That's what Matthew is showing. Now, I think the gospel writers really like irony. This is who Jesus is. He is true. Uh, there is no falsehood in him. If you're wondering who Jesus is, this is what he's like. He knows the way of God truly and teaches truthfully. Just as the Yahweh in the Old Testament did not look at what is on the outside, but rather what on the, what's on the heart, thereby rejecting King Saul and accepting King David in 1 Samuel 16, the Pharisees speak of Jesus in that way. You're not merely impressed or swayed by people's outward appearances. Uh, the fear of man does not control you, but the fear of God. You're a man of God. Jesus is true, and he speaks and teaches the truth. Uh, you see, friends, he's the right person to ask your questions. He will tell you the truth, and he'll point you to the right path. You know, there are times in your life you feel lost in life. I don't know whether any of you feel like that right now. Uh, you don't know what the answer is, where to go, whom to trust. Well, Matthew says, you can trust Jesus. He knows, he knows the truth. He speaks the truth. So ask him and also listen to him. Now, if, if this is who Jesus is, how should they respond to him? In faith and repentance, right? Uh, yet, just like the rebellious tenants back in the parable last chapter, they seek to trap Jesus and destroy Jesus. They ask in verse 17, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
on the surface, it sounds like an honest question, but it's a wicked question. Jesus was aware of their malice. Because if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes to the Romans, then his answer could be construed to the charge of insurrection. We know what Rome did to insurrectionists. But if Jesus says yes to their question, then the rumor proved true. He's not only a friend of the Gentile sinners, but also a Roman tax collector who have been laying heavy burdens upon the Jews. Uh, you see, although it was a short question, it was not a simple question to answer. And it was a very important question about authority. Who's got the authority here? What's the relationship between the kingdom of God and kingdom of Caesar? How do you answer that? What is the truth? Look at verse 19. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The word render here does not simply mean give, but very importantly, give back. Uh, render refers to a return gift of something already given. So give back to Caesar means Caesar has already given something to the Jews. Uh, clearly, Caesar has given the Jewish Jews the coin which they use. Caesar has also, more generally, provided, provided the order within which the Jews enjoyed life. The Jews do not like the Romans, but it's fair to say the Roman Empire makes the trade across the Mediterranean Sea safe. The Romans protect Jews from their traditional enemies from the East. Uh, the Romans provide a kind of stability and safety. So Jesus says, give back to Caesar what he has given you. Pay the taxes for his service. Uh, then the logic of giving back holds true for the second half of Jesus' statement as well. Give back to God what God has first given you. Now, what has God given us? Well, the answer is, what hasn't he given you? Uh, you are made in his image. Every breath you take in life comes from him. The sky, the sun, the moon and the stars, the food that you eat, the drink that you drink, the house you live in, the family and friends you love and are loved by. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, as James says. Or as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If so, God's authority is rightfully more demanding and all-encompassing than Caesar's. Caesar's authority is limited to certain aspects of life. And it only extends as long as it does not challenge God's rightful authority. With regard to paying taxes, giving back to Caesar what is Caesar's is actually honoring to God. That's what Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, 1, later in New Testament. Let every person be subjected to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. But when Caesar's demands are not always compatible with God's, we must say no to Caesar, because God's authority over your life is unlimited and all-encompassing. God has given us everything, everything, even what Caesar gives is ultimately what God gives. So according to Jesus, this is the truth. Uh, we are created in God's image to know him, to love him, 
and to serve him, to live under his rightful authority. That is the purpose and goal of your life. So the right question to ask at this point is, how are you going with that in your life? Are you giving back to God what he has given you in your life? Make sure you answer that. Now, with Jesus' answer, the Pharisees and the Herodians leave, and now the Sadducees come. Uh, Sadducees were a bit different to the Pharisees. They were the party of the priesthood at the time, and being the privileged class, they rejected socially dis disrupting ideas like the resurrection of the dead. You know, they, they wanted everyone to stay just where they were since they were comfortably ensconced at the top. Uh, furthermore, a, a unique feature of the Pharisees, uh, Sadducees was that they only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, as the true inspired word of God, the book of Moses. So they rejected arguments for resurrection from other parts of the Old Testament, like Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or Isaiah 26, verse 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your Jew is a Jew of life, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Or even Job 19, verse 25 to 26, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So here, much like the Pharisees before, the Sadducees present a scenario to trap Jesus. Uh, it's a story designed to expose the absurdity of belief in resurrection. Uh, they cite the Leverite law that requires a brother to marry the widow of his dead brother in order to raise up sons who will continue his line, his inheritance, and his legacy. Then they draw a scenario of multiple deaths and marriages and ask in verse 28, sorry, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? In other words, how can resurrection be possible? It sounds absurd, doesn't it? That's what they're implying with the question. <coughs> but Jesus answered, verse nine, uh, 29, you are wrong. You are misled about the resurrection. You are deceived because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, how so? First of all, Jesus says, in the resurrection state, in the new creation, there will be no more earthly marriages. Now, this might sound very sad to some of you, but it's not because there is no love and relationship in heaven. Rather, what the earthly marriage actually points to, what, what makes earthly marriage good, like love, intimacy, uh, family, his shared sense of history, all those kind of things will come to ultimate fruition and fulfillment in our marriage to Christ in heaven, as we saw in last week's parable. Uh, what marriage in the present realm points to would finally arrive at its goal in our marriage to our perfect bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Uh, you see, Jesus is pointing out there is continuity between creation and new creation. You know, new heavens and new earth will be in some sense like the heavens and earth we know of. So we can picture and imagine heaven. Yet at the same time, there is also a discontinuity. It will be new. 
Uh, heaven will not be just a you know pollution free uh, Norway or Iceland. It will be radically and gloriously new. Uh, I won't be married to my earthly wife in heaven, but my relationship with her in heaven, and not only that, my relationship with everyone else will be that much greater, better, deeper, intimate, close, and enriching. So if you think Leverite marriage would pose a problem for the resurrection age, Jesus says, you seriously misunderstand God's power. Uh, furthermore, Jesus points out that they don't even really understand the scriptures at all, uh, not even the passage that they are quoting. You see, the Sadducees are actually quoting from Deuteronomy 25 here. Uh, feel free to have a look at that in your own time, which says the Leverite brother is supposed to raise up seed for his brother. The word literally means resurrect. Uh, the very passage they quote hints that the scripture aims at resurrecting a dead man. Obviously, not literally resurrecting a dead man himself, but resurrecting him by raising a seed for him. Jesus' implicit point is, if God gave Israel a law that gave hope of continuing life to a dying childless man, in the hope that his name would live on, that he will ultimately inherit God's promise. Does that not show God is a God of resurrection, the God of life after death? Jesus brings out this point explicitly by quoting from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 at the end in verse 31. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. The context of Exodus 3 is important to understand here. Uh, this is God's first revelation to Moses in which he promises Moses that he's going to go back to Egypt to redeem people of Israel out of slavery. Now, this was hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, yet God introduces himself not as, I was the God of Abraham, but rather, I still am the God of Abraham. In other words, God's relationship with Abraham is not something that can be terminated with Abraham's death. Uh, Israel's God is God who binds himself to his people beyond the grave, who will keep his promise. And by that means, he will one day also raise up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob physically also. Uh, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 20, verse 38, Jesus makes this more explicitly by saying, they live unto the Lord even now. And they will be raised up with new bodies in the new heavens with all who trust in the power of God and the word of God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever asked, is there life after death? Have you ever been confronted by the thought of death in the middle of the deep darkness at night, been confronted by that thought. What is my life if death is the end? Have you found the answer to that question yet? Jesus, the teacher of truth, the revealer of God, says here is the answer. God of the Bible is God of resurrection power. He is not God of the dead, but God of the living. To all who come to him through Jesus Christ, the God of I am, 
who is, who was, who is to come, who lives from eternity to eternity, he says he will raise us up in glorious resurrection bodies in his new creation. Now, what a God we have. What a promise he is making to you today through his scripture. Uh, don't be like the Sadducees who are misled, deceived, not knowing neither the scripture nor the power of God. Listen to him and answer him today. Now, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Once again, the language of gathering, isn't it? It's very interesting. Jesus not only gathers the church somehow, Jesus gathers the enemies, like a Psalm 2 all over again. Uh, earlier, they had sent their disciples. And now the big guns are out. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Uh, this is yet another big question, isn't it? Teacher, how should a human being live? What law, what principle should govern and guide our life? Now try to answer that in a sentence or so. <laughs> Mike's doing a big question series. Try to answer that. What principle should govern and guide our lives? Full stop. Now listen to Jesus' answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, what Jesus reveals, this is amazing. At the heart of God is love. That's who God is. God is God of love who created us in his image to share in loving fellowship. Uh, the love of God is why he created us in the beginning. The love of God is why he sent Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And the love of God is what we will experience and enjoy in fullness in the new creation from everlasting to everlasting. Because God is love, we have life. Uh, therefore, what the God of love desires from you is your love of him. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? God is God of love, and what he wants from you is your love of him. Undivided and single-minded love of him. That's the great and first commandment. Uh, love means loyalty. When we love God, we are loyal to him, even if it means opposition. Even if it means the world makes fun of us. Even if it means we are threatened. Even if it means we die. Uh, loving God means fearing him more than men. Loving God means listening to his voice and obeying his word. Loving God means desiring him with all our soul, all our inmost being. Loving God means clinging to him the way a helpless, needy child clings onto his father. Love of God is all-consuming because God deserves and is worthy of our love. But here is another wonderful thing about God which Jesus teaches. The love of God expands and opens up our relationship with other people also. Loving God means and includes loving everybody else. This is so, so amazing about God. Somehow, loving God means you just love everything else. You cannot love God whilst hating a brother who is created in the image of God. When you love God, when you know the love of God, you will love and want to love your neighbor. 
It's in this vein, uh, Apostle Bo, uh, John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, isn't God so beautiful? He's not only powerful, but he's beautiful. His love not only restores our personal relationship with him, but also with one another. You know, very briefly, secular humanitarians of our age want to simply live with the second commandment of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself, but get rid of the first commandment, right? No, we don't want to love God. There is no God. But we like what Jesus has to say about loving your neighbor as yourself. But according to Jesus, I think this is what he's getting at. Without the love of God, without first receiving his love, without seeing the image of God in the other person, Without knowing the resurrection love of God, humanitarian love will ultimately prove fruitless one way or another. And this is why you don't often find consistent atheists. It's very difficult to get rid of God and actually respect and love and treasure human relationship as it is meant to be and in a fruitful, lasting way. Now, in these three encounters, Jesus answers the religious leader's question and reveals glorious truth about God, his authority, his resurrection power, and his love. Now, finally, Jesus asks a question himself in verse 41. Let me read out for you again. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him the Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my, your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Uh, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, that enigmatic Psalm in which David sees a vision of the coming Messiah, the Christ. The Psalm depicts this Messiah figure as not only a new king in the order of David, but also an everlasting priest in the order of Melchizedek, and also an end-time judge who will sit on God's throne and judge the living and the dead. Uh, evidently, though the Messiah is the son of David, he is much greater son of David. He is David's Lord and son of God. Now, if you've been reading the Gospel of Matthew all along, it's not very hard for you to pick up that Jesus is here asking the Pharisees to answer about himself. He's saying, who is Jesus? Uh, who is Jesus that heals a paralytic man? Uh, who is Jesus that even the wind and the seas obey? Who is Jesus that feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish? Who is Jesus that demons, death, disease have no power over him whatsoever? Who is Jesus that every time he opens his mouth, we see the glory of God and truth of God? And the answer is, Jesus is this Christ that Psalm 110 looked forward to. Jesus is the Lord that David had a glimpse of vision. Everything that Jesus revealed and taught about God, Jesus actually fulfills it himself. I look back to what we have learned from Jesus in this passage about the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom of God and his authority. 
Uh, Jesus taught about resurrection. Well, Jesus is the Lord who will be the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the one through whom uh, God is fulfilling his promise of resurrection to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the son of Abraham, after all, as Matthew introduced earlier in chapter 1. Jesus is the one who actually loves God with all his heart and soul and mind. And he is one who loves his neighbor as himself. He will lay down his own life for you and for I. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. He is the Christ who fulfills God's promise of salvation to us. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we began today speaking about asking good questions. Apparently, a key to asking good questions is to listen carefully. You know, it's, it's the same with university students, uh, you know, the, those who don't listen to the lectures, they don't know what to ask questions. So during Q&A, they're quiet because they weren't listening anyway. So what are they going to ask? And when they ask, it's never a good question. A key to asking good questions is to listen carefully. It's only when you observe and listen carefully, you understand what is it that you need to ask and find the right answers. And it's the same with Jesus in the Gospels. The problem with the religious leaders here is that they do not listen carefully. They neither know the scripture, right? Nor do they see the truth and power of God at work in Jesus Christ with their very eyes. It's happening before them, yet they cannot see. So they cannot and will not answer this question right. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? They don't see it and they'll kill Jesus. But what about you? Now, you have seen Jesus in action. You have heard his truth. You have witnessed his power shown to us in the Gospel of Matthew. Who is Jesus to you? How will you respond to him today? Matthew says, he is the Christ. Let us answer to him with love that is with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. Amen.